Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. The reading today is from Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17. The whole armour of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let me read verse 17, the verse we're looking at today again. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hi everybody, it's really good to see you. Uh, my name is Hal Wood. That was a lot better, wasn't it? Uh, I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel and everyone is welcome here. Um, Amanda can give me a score out of 10 for that later. <laughs> it's brilliant. If you're new to us as a church, if you're new watching online, in person, you're so welcome here. Uh, just to backtrack, we're in a series that's called Stronger Together. It's based on the last chapter of this first century letter. It's called Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, do keep that open in front of you. Um, it's good news. It's full of really, really good news. And today is a message. It's, it's about good news. I think many of us right now, maybe you're here and you're in the room, you're watching online and you feel beaten up, you feel bruised, you feel like you've been battered. And it's not just that you've lived through an unrelenting global pandemic. I'm here to tell you that you're living in a spiritual war zone. There's battle going on around you. The world, the flesh, and the devil are seeking to discourage and even destroy you. And that's what Paul is, is writing about here in these verses. He has been inspired by God to help you to overcome. Now, you may think, oh, he's, this guy is a bit crazy. Well, listen, just, just listen to me out. <laughs> Give me the benefit of the doubt and decide at the end whether you think I'm a total lunatic or not. But I believe that the reality of Satan is the best explanation for why there is so much evil and suffering in this world. It's why often you, you have bad thoughts that come into your mind. It's why you're, you're tempted again and again to do the, the wrong thing, to go against your conscience. And so God has put me here today to encourage you. My job is to be in the trenches with you to help you to find strength, to be strong in the Lord, no matter what you're facing in life, what trials, griefs, laments, pains, frustrations, disappointments you're wrestling with. I'm here today under the power of God through these scriptures to help you to stand firm. And how do you do that? You do that by putting on the armor of God. 
The full armor of God. What is that? That means to put on Christ. That is to put on all of the good news of the Christian faith. So I'm drilling down just into one verse, verse 17 of chapter 6, looking at two items of the armor of God. Actually, we're bringing the whole armor of God section at least to an end. We're not finishing the series just yet. We're looking at the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so to set our scene into this, I want to talk a little bit about perspective. Um, and I'm going to share with you a little illustration that I came across some years back about a, a university student writing to her mum and dad to help them get perspective. So she, she writes them a letter. Uh, I've got it here. Um, and she writes this, dear mum and dad, sorry for my thoughtlessness in not having written before. I'll bring you up to date now, but before you read on, please sit down. Are you sitting down? Don't read on unless you are. Well, I can see that you are all sitting down, so I, I shall read on. She says, I'm doing okay now. The skull fracture and concussion from jumping out of my bedroom window at university when it caught fire has nearly healed. Fortunately, the fire and the jump was witnessed by an attendant at the nearby petrol station. He took me to hospital and he continued to visit me. When I got out of hospital, I had nowhere to live because of the burnt out conditions of my room. So he kindly lent me, let me share his bedroom flat. We have fallen deeply in love. We're planning to get married. We haven't set the exact date yet, uh, but it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I'm pregnant. Yes, mum and dad. I know how much you're looking forward to being grandparents and I know you will welcome the baby and give it the same tender care and devotion that you have me when I was a child. In conclusion, now that I have brought you up to date, I want to tell you there was no dormitory fire. I did not have concussion or a skull fracture. I was not in hospital. I am not pregnant and there is no boyfriend in my life. However, I am failing one of my four modules this term at university, and I wanted you to see these marks in their proper perspective. Genius of a university student. That's how to do it. Um, the point is, though, that story takes something that's not that bad and sort of shows you it in perspective which the, with things that are worse to help you see that that's not quite as bad as maybe you're making it out to be. Well, the Christian faith here does something a little bit different. It takes the fullness of the trouble and trial. It doesn't diminish them. The stuff, the bad stuff that's going on in your life, it doesn't say that's, don't worry about that. It says it accepts how bad that is, but it says that's eclipsed by the glory and the greatness of what God has done, past, present, and future, what he's going to do in your life. That will feel so small and insignificant when you can see that and live with a proper perspective, a heavenly perspective. That's what the helmet of salvation is all about here in this passage. And that leads me to the first of two questions that I want to put to you. Again, I'm asking questions to help you apply this, to help you live this out, to help you to talk about this, discuss this passage. The first question would be, have you got your helmet on? Really? Now, I've tagged that really question on because I know what many of us Christians are like. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, I've got that, that helmet thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm wearing that. I think I'm wearing that. When the truth is, is that I think many Christians today... We're running around like anxious, headless chickens, 
doing our best to cover it up, but that's what's going on inside. It's like turmoil and wrestling is the honest truth of, of what's really going on. Now, I, I wonder, here's another question. Have you ever seen a headless chicken? I don't know if you've had the privilege of doing that. Uh, I, I get to see a headless chicken very often. It's quite frequent experience when I look in the mirror. I'll be honest with you. I think that's true for many of us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's the former minister, famous preacher here at Westminster Chapel. On these verses, he wrote this. Our adversary, the devil, often attacks us through producing a sense of weariness or tiredness. Anyone want to admit feeling weary and tired at the moment? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's all of us, isn't it? But then he goes on to say, so much so that the Christian sometimes feels like giving up the entire battle. Satan seeks to exhaust you so completely that you will stop thinking clearly. Good example of this from the Bible would be Elijah, the great prophet Elijah. You can read about it, 1 Kings 17 to chapter 19. Here's a man who's had this awesome victory at Mount Carmel. He calls fire down from heaven and he exposes like the the religions that these other folks are believing in, that utter tosh and nonsense, because my God, he sends fire from heaven. Wow, amazing kind of breakthrough miracle. Then he calls down rain, and it rains in response to his praying. And then he runs like a crazy man, faster than a chariot. And then we find him utterly exhausted from doing this supernatural work. Here is the man who can, who's been blessed by God to, to control the elements of creation. He's suddenly utterly flawed when Queen Jezebel comes and threatens his life. He's so tired, he's lost perspective. God is small and people have become big. He's so discouraged. This man who's done these great things, he's so discouraged because of his weariness and his exhaustion in that he contemplates suicide. And this is a serious moment, I really believe there might be people in this room or you're watching online and you are having suicidal thoughts. It happens. But you need to know that God has told me to speak to you today, to give you hope. Say, don't suffer alone. He can help you. We would love the privilege to be able to help you. Don't leave this place. Don't stop watching online without talking to somebody. Request prayer. Request help. Come and speak to me after the service. We've seen people break through and overcome such thoughts. We really have by the power of God. What I'm saying here is that Elijah lost perspective because he was exhausted. And so can you. Maybe you have already. He thought that God wasn't really kind of that in control anymore, that God maybe didn't have a plan. He's like, I'm the only one left. God, what are you doing? God had thousands of people left. God God had the whole thing under control. It was all way more okay than he thought. I'd encourage you to go read 1 Kings chapter 19 if you've got issues with this. The helmet of salvation is designed to help us hold on to God's perspective in the midst of difficulty and battle. And it essentially is the assured heavenly perspective on reality that enables you to look back, to look out, to look forward because you're looking up. And you can look in that way with confidence and joy despite all that you're going through because you're looking up. 
a large part of the Christian faith is, is in your mind. It's in the battle for your mind. It's in your thought life. It's in what's going on mentally. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says we're to take every thought captive. And what God is saying through Paul is that you need to have your mind governed and guarded by the doctrine of salvation, by salvation, in order for you to stay sane, to have the right perspective, to not fall victim to the deceptions of Satan. So how do you do that? Well, we need to understand what the doctrine of salvation is. Well, salvation is past, present, and future. Salvation past is the assurance for a believer that you have been saved simply by trusting in Jesus. It is a confidence. As we've sung already, I am a child of God. We call that justification. I have been put right in right standing with God. Not by my works, but by faith in Jesus. That Jesus was my substitute on the cross. He took my place. He died for my sins. And he declares out, Tetelestai paid in full. And he says, it is finished. Who do you think you are? To say to him, nah, you didn't do enough. <laughs> I need to add something to that. I need to beat myself up. I need to suffer a little bit more to ensure that I'm really saved. Not only is your sinfulness wiped away, but you are accredited with Christ's righteousness. And that's how you're seen. This is a legal declaration, act of faith. The, the moment that you believe. That's why we say it's in the past. It has happened if you've trusted in Jesus. However rubbish, ugly, dirty, useless, a waster of life, all of that. However bad a sinner that you were, you're now a saint in Jesus Christ. It has happened. That's how God sees you. That's how he relates to you. You are a holy one. This is glorious good news. Your chains have gone. You've been set free. You can sing, my God, my God, you've ransomed me. But you know, there are too many Christians that I meet who spend so much time questioning their salvation, feeling discouraged. I'm, I'm okay, kind of checking the spiritual pulse. <laughs> All right today. Have I had a, if I've had a good week, maybe I'm a believer. Maybe I'm not. If I'm doing... All this kind of stuff get lost in, in confusion, uncertainty, and doubt, and end up almost doing the devil's work for him. He just sets that little seed of motion in. Are you really a Christian? And then you're lost in that chain of thought, not able to stand your ground and have the right perspective that you are a loved, saved one. Let me share something that we would call here once saved, always saved. Sometimes a controversial doctrine. But I'd explain it like this. If you've been born again, you cannot be unborn. Jesus, when he's giving that illustration in John chapter 3, it's very deliberate. It's a principle in nature that when a thing is born, when a human child is born, you don't take that child and shove the child back up into its mother again. And even if you did do that, you'd already be talking about that child as a child that had been born, that had been put back in that place. You can't undo this fact of reality. If you've been born again, you are born again. It defines your existence forever. Jesus in John chapter 10 puts it like this. He says, anybody, when the Father puts you into my hand, no one can take you out of my hand. And then has the audacity to go on to confirm that and says, if you're in the Father's hand, you can't be taken out of the Father's hand either. I don't know how you get around those kinds of scriptures. Paul in Romans chapter 8 at the end of this chapter is trying to help us because he knows we're going to have a battleground over this issue. 
So he says, let me think of everything people can think of that might get in the way of God's love. And his argument is, nothing can separate you from God's love. And he goes, what about this? Could that do it? No, not that. What about this? Let me think of that. Could that do it? No, not that. What about this? Oh, I've had this idea. Could that separate me? No, not that. He's going, nothing, 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 nothing can ever separate you from God's love. Why is he saying that? Because God's love is too strong. God's love is too deep. God's love is too wide. God's love is too high. God's love is too mighty. It's the infinite love of God, not a person. It cannot be broken once it is his will to shower that love upon a person. It's just, it's just not possible why do we spend so much time questioning our salvation now you're going to come back there are some warning passages Howard have you missed those no I haven't missed those but God in his sovereignty and his wisdom uses warning passages upon a believer's life to ensure that the doctrine of once saved always saved is carried out I don't work against it. That's his means, one of his means to ensure that you don't lose your salvation. Because he knows if I put a warning in there, that'll work upon a believer's heart and ensure that they carry through. It's mysterious and sovereign, but it doesn't dispute the truth of scriptures that I've just gone to. You're saved. Hallelujah. Nothing can undo that. It's an irrevocable fact. Don't give the devil an inch. Salvation past. Salvation present. We call this sanctification, that as you cooperate with God that you become more Christ-like. You are getting conformed into the image of Christ in his character. This happens typically through a process of confession and repentance where we're seeking to die to sin, to to kill sin, to die to that self-righteousness, to live out of Christ's righteousness. And as we die in that process, life comes and the Spirit births the fruit of Christ's character, his love and his joy and his peace and his patience and his kindness. And we're being transformed from one degree of glory as we look upon the face of Jesus. As we behold him, we become more like him. That's what's happening in your life. This is a glorious truth. It means that you are being saved from my sin and my... (laughs) Let me rephrase that. You are being saved from my sin. (laughs) Uh, But you're being saved from your sin and your foolishness again and again and again. I'm being saved from my sin and my foolishness again and again. I'm being protected from the most stupid things that I do myself through this sanctifying work of Christ. So are you giving God the credit that he's due for the work that he's doing in you right now? Or do you just, just think, oh, it's just not, oh, I'm, not, I'm not changing, I'm not making any progress. I'm stagnating in the Christian life. You think you might be stagnating. I tell you, there's a good chance you may well be being sanctified. And often we don't know as believers, we don't know. It's one of devil's favorite tricks is to keep you on your own, never let you, never let you feel free to talk about this, but we need one another. And this is why small groups and life groups are so important because the other Christians in your life will be able to see much more clearly than you can of the spiritual progress that you're making in the Christian life. And they'll be able to look back with you and say, that's nonsense. Look how far you've come. Look what we see God doing in your life. It's glorious. You should be celebrating him, whereas you were about to Do the devil's work for him and beat yourself up. What a failure I am. But if you let other people into your life, they'll be able to say, wow, we see God has done extraordinary things in you. We need each other. Don't give the devil an inch. Salvation past, salvation present. Salvation future is 
called glorification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul's talking about the helmet of salvation again. And he there describes it as the helmet of, with the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation, that salvation is also a future event. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says that salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. This is a glorious truth. That there is a future day coming where we will be saved from hell. Saved from eternal separation, from the sweetness of being in the presence of our Savior, Jesus, and all that is good. Saved from hell and saved into what? Delight and joy in the presence of God, in a world made new forever in glory. This is, this is amazing. You will have a new glorified body. That will have no, you will not sin. It will not age. If you could see yourself in that future glory, I tell you, you probably lay down and worship yourself now. You'd be so impressed with how, how you are and how you appear. And this is nearer now from an eternal point of view. This future glory is nearer now than you could imagine. It'll make all of the troubles and trials of this life feel like just one Night in a bad hotel. Do you know, Holly and I, we had one evening once in a bad hotel. We had arrived in Lanzarote in the afternoon, and unfortunately, it became Lanzagrotti for us because the room that they'd placed us in temporarily, immediately we discovered, had just a couple of cockroaches around and about in it. Good size. I've, I've lived in Africa. I know my cockroaches very, quite well. Um, and so we went to the hotel reception and they sent us back with something that's probably illegal in the UK, but like insecticide in a, in a spray can. And so we're sort of looking around. So I'm thinking, oh, oh, you know, first thing you might do, I check the bed, pull back the duvet. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a cockroach in there. Lift up the pillow. Oh, yeah, there's a cockroach in there. So we lost five or six, seven cockroaches. They're sort of scuttling around now as they're being discovered. And I think, oh, I wonder where the nest is have this sort of slightly stupid moment and think, I could track down the nest. So I go to the, to the bathroom, I find the little shower tray, sure enough, because cockroaches love the dark and, and water and, and stuff like that. So I find this little hole and go, yeah, they're coming from there. And without thinking, I get the spray and I just unleash an absolute ton of the spray into this hole. It's like, shh, like that. And then, of course, what happens next? An army of cockroaches now drunk from the toxic fumes of the spray are like staggering out of this hole invading this flat. It was, it was a horrible moment. So they felt for us, the people who owned the hotel. They put us up in the night at another hotel um, and then they brought us back the following day to the right place to stay with a bottle of wine and some treats and an apology note and we had an amazing seven days in Lanzarote. And that totally reshaped, recolored that first evening. Such It just became a humorous moment for us, not like a disaster. We, could, we, we laughed about it. It was fine because it had been transformed by the positive time that we'd had in the same place. How much more? How much more will an eternity in the new heavens and in the new earth, a world remade without sin, sickness and suffering, transform? the trials and challenges that you're going through in this life. It's going to be a glorious future world, this salvation. I wonder if there's anybody who wants to admit that they're a lawyer here. I've got any lawyers in the room. I used to be a lawyer. I can do this. No one feels safe. They don't. I think they're all 
They were watching from home this morning. Shame on you, lawyers. Um, well, they're just really embarrassed to, to own it. <laughs> You're not welcome. You don't make it into, into this new salvation glory. Now, I'm, I am just teasing, but there is something significant here. The, the reason why you can't continue to be a lawyer in this place there's maybe some route you could be a non-contentious lawyer. They're kind of the more boring types of law in the legal world. I'm sorry, I'm being really naughty now. Um, but there's no, there's no sins. There'll be no litigation. There'll be no dispute resolution. There'll be no conflict for lawyers to get involved with. There'll be no need to chase ambulances and things like that anymore. Because that, that just won't be the world of the future. It won't happen. You're going to have to have a change of career when you get to heaven. There'll be no locksmiths in heaven because there won't be any stealing. Can you imagine that? You don't need you know, your password on your phone anymore. You don't need to worry about that. You won't need insurance anymore. All that stuff, no more in this world. I'm sharing with this just, just to help you start to dream about the glory of what this future is going to be like. All the unanswered, all the challenging, all the difficult questions of this life will be resolved on that day. On that day, Christians who suffer now, they will suffer no more on that day. Have you got your helmet on? Have you really got it on? Or have you lost perspective a little bit? Has the devil done a number on you where he's got you looking down in discouragement with an earthly perspective on things. I'm not trying to condemn you. I think that happens to all of us at different points. I'm just trying to encourage you, get the helmet on. Put, put your helmet on and start looking back, looking in the present, looking in the future with a perspective of salvation. And that's how you'll keep your head when all others are losing theirs. This is the first question. It's about the helmet of salvation. The second question is about um, whether you are armed and dangerous. Are you armed and dangerous? Um, I hope not, <laughs> in the wrong sense. Um, you haven't come to, to church with, a, with an actual sword. That would be really awkward and weird um, if you are here doing that. Um, there's a danger in being unarmed, isn't there? I once organized a stag day. Um, I was the best man, and we had a day paintballing. But I had heard that if they knew that you were organizing a stag event when you do paintballing, basically it's kind of like a, a sort of rule of thumb that what they do is they get the best man and the stag. At the end of the day, they put you in the middle. Everybody else you're with stands around you in a small circle, very close, and you are unarmed. You're not allowed to defend yourself, and they fire every bit of leftover ammo, almost point blank at you in the middle. Now, if you've been paintballing, you know that when you get one point blank, it hurts. Like, it leaves a whopper of a bruise. Sometimes a well emerges. So I'm like, why would I want to do that? I'm just not going to tell them it's a stag do. So sure enough, I didn't have the awful, unpleasant situation of being unarmed, unable to defend myself, paintballing. How much more stupid, how much more foolish is it to go up against Satan unarmed? When... You've been given an unbelievable weapon by God against him. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the Scriptures, the Bible, made alive as we read it by the Holy Spirit. So it's living and active. But you have to read it to be able to wield it as a weapon. To know the Scriptures. And you know who? I'm not talking about Lord Voldemort, Harry Potter fans. 
He's always trying to discredit the scriptures, to discourage you from reading them. So he'll put lies out, deception about them out there, and he'll try and normalize that in the culture of the world so that you think, oh, they're, they're, not, they're not very credible. They're not very reliable. They're full of errors and contradictions. This Bible's not, not trustworthy. I tell you, this absolute rubbish. The Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels are very clearly the most reliable ancient document the world has ever known. Got a table here with just some of the facts and stats. If you were to compare the Gospels, the New Testament Gospels, the first century biographies about Jesus against other works of history, the time gap that is there for the Scriptures, as well as the sheer volume of numbers, just puts it like that's the Premier League. And then none of these others even make it into Division 1, Division 2, Division 3. Maybe they might just sneak into Division 4 by sake of comparison of their historical accuracy and reliability. We have so many copies and fragments of copies. There's such a wealth of that. You can see that 24,000 telling us what this, these verses say, that when you put them together, we can get back so precisely exactly to the original. It's unbelievable that the average kind of historical scholar would say that the Bible is something like 99.5% actually accurate to the original scriptures that were written. It's, it's sensational. And then when you have that 0.5%, they'll put a little note in the margins. Um, just to be, because we're honest and accountable about that. Well, this, this is slightly different here. But you see, it's like, it doesn't really affect the primary meaning of, of the text. Don't let any of that nonsense discourage you from what you're reading. That is an extraordinary, supernatural document. But this may be your experience. You find it really hard to read your Bible. You find it really hard to remember to prioritize reading the Bible. You find it hard to get up in the morning or whenever you do your Bible reading. And, and if you do read your Bible, you find your mind wandering and you're distracted. You're kind of all over the place. Well, are you surprised? You shouldn't be surprised because reading your Bible is spiritual warfare. Satan doesn't want you to know the word, to read the word, because then you can't wield it against his deceptions and his lies. You're vulnerable in that sense. And he knows what a dangerous weapon it is. So that moment when you're battling to read the Bible is warfare. That's why you find it hard. But it's also why it promises such power. It is such a privilege to have the Bible. You may not know this, but you may know it already. But I'll just remind you, there was a time when we did not have the Bible in our own language to read in this nation, in London. It was in Latin. And the average person in London, let alone the UK, did not understand Latin. That wasn't the language. So they couldn't understand the Bible, couldn't, couldn't engage with it on their own when it was being read. Total, limited, almost impossible for them to have access for it. And people died. People gave their lives to see it translated into the common language so that we could have it today. It's an outworking of the Reformation. And even now, it's still forbidden in some countries around the world to own and have this Bible. And here we have in print, on our phones, on access, whenever we want it. I think part of the challenge is that we have it so freely available that we forget how privileged we are and how precious it is. And so we don't end up spending enough time reading it. We take it for granted. Whereas if we were in other parts of the world, I don't know if we would. Now, it would be really unhelpful for me to talk about like 
the excitement of the Bible and why you should read the Bible without giving you a way of, of reading it, right? So I'm going to share with you my method that I've been doing for a number of years, on and off. I'm not perfect at this at all, but I would call it SOAP. Um, and I got this from somebody else. It was another idea which I've just uh, taken and used for many, many years. And it's an acrostic, scripture, observation, application, and prayer. So basically what I do in the mornings, um, this is my latest kind of journal, I work through books of the Bible or characters of the Bible fairly systematically as I feel led by the Holy Spirit. And I'll take one or two verses at a time. So I'll just write down um, in the corner of a page the date. I'll write down the verses. I'm studying where there's just a few verses. I'm only doing maybe one or three verses maximum a day at the moment, um, such as life as a father of two young kids. So I'll actually write out the scriptures by hand. That helps me slow down to engage with God's word. Run, just read it, let it wash me. No, I'm going to really, I'm going to write them down, maybe underline some bits. And then I'm going to share all of the things I'm observing about this, this passage. Asking the what, where, when, why, how, who questions. What does it reveal about God? What does it say about humanity? Where does it fit in the course of the biblical story? How is it helping me glory in Christ in this passage? And then I'll start to prayerfully seek to hear from God for some application points. What is God telling me I need to keep going in? Where is he encouraging me? Where is he challenging me? Where is he saying, that's sin, Howard, you need to repent of that? Where is he saying, that this is, this, is, this is where you need to grow in, Howard? And I'll write down some points, then I'll turn that into a prayer, and I will write it out again, because I find this slows me down, and it, it helps me externalize what's internal. And I'll write out a prayer thanking God for speaking to me, confessing my sins, asking for his power to come by the Holy Spirit, that he might lead me in that. And then that'll lead me into a time of intercessory prayer. And in the back of my journal, I then have a number of uh, basically lists of things I'm praying for written down there with space for an answer. And I'm ticking them off every time I pray for them. That's what I've been doing. You can see a stack here. I'm not trying to do this to show off. If I had done this accurately for all the years, that should probably be up about here. But it's not. Because there are days that I miss. You know, there are days when I, I, I forget and I, I neglect to do this practice. But every time that you do that, you've just got to pick yourself up and carry on and encourage yourself. Don't do the devil's work again for him by beating yourself up. Oh, I'm such a failure. I haven't read my Bible today. And then that colors the entire way that you're going to God in the scriptures again. No, you're a child of God. I am a forgiven one. Now I'm going to meet with him and I'll be excited. What's he going to say to me today? Oh, I want to hear his voice, his loving, generous voice. That's what should drive us. Don't get yourself into sort of a, a discouragement cycle over reading the Bible. The Roman sword that is described here is a dagger. That's a, a, a weapon for up close and personal warfare. Satan prowls around you like a roaring lion. And so you need this dagger, this, this sword to cut through, frankly, all of his CRAP, all of his deceptions and lies. Truth matters. The armor of God is bookended by truth. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. The whole of the Christian life. It's what Paul is talking about. Finally, this speech, this final speech, he's building on everything he said. This is how you are to live. It begins with the belt of truth and it ends with the sword of truth. Vitally essential. What truths are we meant to wield though? Well, why wouldn't you start with 
the letter of Ephesians. Go back to the beginning. The truth I'm going to reel that I'm ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. He's accepted me. This is my new identity in Christ. This is, wow, I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The Greek word for word, word of God that's actually used here, is an interesting word because it, it relates to a specific proclamation of the truth against a particular lie of Satan. Some of that's what's sort of being described that's going on here. And the encouragement is to know the scriptures so well that you can draw upon those scriptures to meet the particular lie, accusation, attack of Satan coming against you. And of course, Jesus is the perfect example of that. Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus knew Deuteronomy so well, he could just pick up the scriptures and take them against Satan and say, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. That's the call for us, to know the scriptures so well that we are harmed and dangerous, but not just for ourselves. This is for us as a community, as a church, and beyond that word proclamation is, is a word which suggests that there's something going out. So it's not just for yourself, it's going out. Jesus speaks that truth out loud. I think there's a power in that. And if you look at the context of this whole letter, we keep coming back to this. It's a your letter. Every you is a plural you. It's about the community, the one new man in Jesus Christ. And so we are called to proclaim truth to one another. To help set each other free as we know the word of God. To hold and wield this sword. Now for me, to give an illustration of how the sword works, I'm turning to Lord of the Rings, of course. Uh, no surprise to those who are regulars and familiars here, to a sword called Sting. Uh, and if you know this, this sword, it's kind of wielded by the Bagginses typically in this epic saga uh, of Middle-earth. And it's used, where is it used? It's used where you have these supersized, evil, like satanic giant spiders who are wrapping them up people in, in like devilish lies of cobwebs. And Sting is this super elven sword that can just cut right through them and set people free. We have the sword of the Spirit, the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So we're called to wield it in our devotional times, to cut ourselves free. We're called to wield it in life groups, in small groups, to help cut others free. We're called to wield it as we gather on Sundays, to cut one another free in the proclaiming of this, in the public reading of Scripture, in the contributions that people bring, in the songs that we sing in worship that are to be Scripture-rich songs. Yeah, I think there's a new season for the church that we will play a part of in writing scripture-rich songs. And I want to prophesy that by this time next year, you will hear us singing our own songs, written by Mike and his team and others, no pressure, but I'm believing for that. And they're going to be songs that are going to help set us free. Because they're soaked in the truth of God's word. We're called to be a people of the truth. A people who are set free by the truth. And a people who set others free with the truth. This is what Jesus said when he read Nazareth. The Nazareth manifesto it's called when he says, I have come 
to set the captives free. And what an opportunity we have <laughs> with a building reopening, with a cafe that's starting, New Acre, with ministries that's like little stars that haven't been able to happen because of the pandemic, beginning again, with Christmas just around the corner, we have an unbelievable opportunity to be proclaimers of the truth in a culture that's so confused about truth. What an opportunity. We know. We know that postmodernism, that most people have kind of like a, been sat in like a grow bag and have grown out of. It's true for you, but it's not true for me. Right? It's still around. It's how people relate to this whole idea of truth. It's utter nonsense. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to be rude like, that there is a thing which is, it's true for you, you are feeling that. I'm not trying to be rude. But like if that doesn't accord or fit with the rest of reality, then you are fairly lost. There is a capital tree, T, truth, that is objective that's out there. So um, there either is or there isn't milk in my fridge right now. Just a fact. The world either is or it isn't flat. Right? Now if there is, or rather if there isn't, there is no milk in my fridge right now, but I'm living as if there is. That's going to be disappointing for me, right? Now, if I'm living as if the world is flat and it isn't, that might get a bit dangerous. But if I'm living as if the devil's lies and deceptions are true, that's going to be disastrous. We're called to be a people of the truth, to know the truth to be set free by the truth ourselves so we can set others free from all of the lies and deception that Satan, the father of lies, popularizes today. It's time to get our helmet on. Get perspective. It's time to wield that sword of the Spirit now as we engage in worship with the confidence the night has almost gone. Daybreak is coming. Salvation, that day of glory, when we will see him face to face. And all the evil of this world will be righted. All the troubles and trials will be put in their proper perspective as we begin a glorious eternity with him and his people forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we have a hope, Lord, that one day we will see you and we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Lord, and all that has been disappointing in this life will be put right. Help us today to put on that helmet of salvation. Help us to overcome the lies of the evil one with the truth that you won for us at the cross and your resurrection, that those who believe on you, they have been saved. We are your children. It's irrevocable. It's done. That once we've trusted in you, that we are being saved, that you're always at work in our lives, transforming us from one degree of glory to another, and that there is this great hope, this future salvation that is coming, that one day... We will be with you forever in glory in a world remade without sin. 
Help us to know this and help us to enjoy these truths and to wield the truth of your word with power to set ourselves free, but to set many, many, many others free that we might see hundreds of lives transformed for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.